0: Well, good morning, everybody. Man, it is good to see you guys. Happy Sunday to you. My name is Aaron. I'm one of the pastors here at Bridgewater, and we are really glad that you are here. Um, We are taking some time to talk about something that I think all of us really struggle with. If you don't, That's awesome. I hope you'd be patient uh, because I realize I, I struggle with this and I think maybe a few of you do too. We're talking about fear, worry, and anxiety. Okay now um, before we dive in I just want to say a couple of things. First of all I heard you guys were super awesome for Pastor Bob last week so thank you. Thank you guys. You guys are awesome. I hope you enjoyed having him here. You need to know and understand how much God has moved and worked through that Montrose church and through his leadership. You realize that we are here today right? We are here today. Because of what God has done through that church and then starting other locations. Amen? Okay? Isn't that amazing? And I say that to you for a reason. You need to stop and think about what God is doing here right now and what he might do through us. That maybe, just maybe, God would bless and allow us to be a part of something like that. Where we get to be used to help start another location. Wouldn't that be amazing? Amen. I think we can get excited about that, right? Amen. That'd be awesome. So I am I, glad that I was able to be down there. Uh, I missed you all, uh, but, but I was glad that you guys were, were really, really awesome for Bob, okay? Now, to get us going this morning, I have a question for you. We've been talking about fear, worry, Anxiety and so far we've been talking about ways to really break up with fear, worry, and anxiety, and just so you know I 'm not going to play another Taylor Swift song for you this week, okay I'm really sorry. I did play one down in Montrose. maybe it'll come out next week we'll see okay uh, but she is amazing at breakup songs, and we're talking about ways that we can break up with fear, worry, and anxiety. But but here's, here's the question for you. Is it wrong to be afraid? Ooh, a little murmuring. That's fun. What are we murmuring? Is it wrong to be afraid? What do you think? Let's just do a quick, informal poll. Raise your hand if you think it's not wrong to be afraid. How many, how many hands? There's, there's room for fear. Okay, how many of you think it, it is wrong to fear? Well, you are brave. Thank you to those of you who just raised your hand. You know, sometimes when we talk about fear, worry, and anxiety, it's really easy to fe- feel like we're talking about it as if it's all wrong, isn't it? But here's the reality. There's a few things that, that we do. I've done, you've done, you've taught other people that demonstrate that, that fear really isn't always wrong. How about this? Ever said this? Look both ways. You ever said that? Why do we say that? We say that because we, we need to teach our children that there might be cars, right? So be aware. Be diligent. Be fearful, so to speak, of the fact that cars can come and and what can happen. You understand. We were we were serving, my wife and I were serving in, in Kansas City with our church, and we were doing a cleanup in the community, and there's a little girl, she was about seven years old. We were cleaning on a very busy road. We had a truck right there, and for some reason, she got it in her mind to go to the other side to her, to her mama, and she took off. She was right beside me. She took off running, and, and her dad, I have, her, her, her dad is a big, strong man. I have never seen a big man move that fast. <laughs> I mean, he screamed and, stop! And, why? Because sometimes there's reasons to be afraid. And we, we teach. We teach, look both ways. How about this one? You ever, you ever say, don't touch that? <laughs> Can't touch this. Okay, no, there you go. Sorry. Now you know how old I am, okay? Uh, we teach kids not to touch things. Why? Because they're, they're hot or they're sharp or they're dangerous. We teach them to be aware, right? What about this one? Ever say, stay away from the edge. Don't, don't walk out there next to the edge, you know? I would think that would be like self-explanatory, But for some reason, children like to just get up there and, oh, I'm going to kick rocks off the side. You're also going to give me a heart attack, okay? We say things like that. I've had to say each one of these. There's one other. Maybe you've never said this one, but I've had to say this one. Don't drive the four-wheeler until I get home. Okay, I won't explain that story. I'll get in trouble if I tell that story. But, but there is a story behind it. There's a reason why we teach these things and we say these things. It's not because fear in and of itself is wrong or bad. It, it's, there is a place for fear. There is a place. But as we're diving into this series and we're talking about breaking up with fear, we actually want to teach you something that I think will revolutionize the way we deal with our fears our fears about our kids, our fears about money, our fears about our jobs, our fears about our future relationships, our fears about every single piece. See, the real issue is not whether or not you are afraid. The w- real issue is this where do you look and where will you turn when you are afraid? Where do you go? Where do you look? What do you look to? What do you cling to? What do you hold on to? What do you grab to? What stabilizes you? What is your anchor? What is it that you look to in the midst of your very real fears? Because you have them and I have them and your neighbor has them. And, and even the people who say, no, I don't have them. <laughs> yeah, you're awesome. I, I really like you. They probably have them. In fact, experience tells me that, that um, you have a lot of them. I've mentioned a few, you have fears about your health, you have fears about your spouse's health, you have fears about paying for things, so do I. In fact, our, our, our world is filled with fear, our country is filled with fear. In 2011, I came across a a survey about fear, worry, and anxiety. And let me share with you a few things I found. Here's what I found. Uh, Anxiety issues are the most common mental illnesses in the United States, affecting 20% of the population. This was 2011. Do you know that by 2014, it had gone up to 32%? I'd hate to see what the numbers are after COVID. I I don't even know. I don't even know. In 2010, more than 253 million prescriptions were written for antidepressants in the United States. Do you know how many people are in the United States? Just under 400 million. That's a lot of prescriptions. Not only that, anxiety issues cost the United States more than 50 billion in a year, yet in spite of all that we do, more than 34,000 people take their own lives every year. Why? Because of fear, worry, and anxiety. And, and and here's what I would say, probably because we haven't learned where we can put our eyes and, and where we can turn, and we haven't found something that is actually a firm anchor. And what I want to do today is I want to take you to a story that I think is so powerful and so foundational. It shows us Where we can put our eyes, where we can turn, in the midst of your very real fears, worries, and anxieties, okay? I I don't have a pill that can take it away. If I had it, I would just give it. I don't. But what I do have is a firm foundation that can give you something that will not move and will help you in the midst of your fears. Where we're going to go this morning is Matthew chapter 14, okay? So if you have a Bible... Go ahead and open up there. If you want to use your phone, you can, you can turn there. By the way, if you don't happen to have your own Bible, we, we keep Bibles here on purpose for you. We have Bibles out in the foyer. There's these orange Bibles out there. You can actually take it and take it home because we want you to have your own copy. Because here's the deal. I do not want you to take my word for it. I want you to look at it for yourself, okay? Now, if you don't happen to have a Bible, you can follow along up here with me. So let's look at Matthew chapter 14, and we're going to pick up in verse 22 this morning, okay? Verse 22 comes right after, this is a big point, verse 21. I know, I know, that's revolutionary. Why do I say that? Okay, the the passage right before this passage really goes well with it. You need to understand that the story that happens right before the story I'm about to tell you, both work together to illustrate one common point. It works to illustrate and demonstrate the power of God. I want you to see the power of God. I'll tell you a little bit about the other story in a minute, but let's pick up in verse 22. Here's what it says. Immediately, Jesus. Immediately. Well, what does that mean? Well, something apparently has happened already, and now Jesus is doing something. What's he doing? Immediately Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to the other side while he dismissed the crowd. So what was happening here? Jesus had gone over to the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee or or, or the Sea of Gennesaret. You can, you know, sometimes it's called both of them, but we know it you know, best as the Sea of Galilee. He's on the eastern side. He was mourning the fact that his his cousin, John the Baptist, had just been beheaded, okay? He's over there mourning and praying, and then people come to Jesus, and they start gathering around, and he's teaching, he's healing, and he's doing all sorts of things, and he says to his disciples, uh, or the disciples come to him and say, hey, we should dismiss all of these people. There's a lot of them, at least 5,000 men, and, and Jesus says, no, 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 let's feed them. You feed them. They said, well, we don't have any food. We don't have enough money. What are we going to do? He says, well, what do you have? Come to find out that they had, you know, what is it, five loaves and two fish? So they brought that to Jesus, and what did Jesus do? Jesus took five loaves of bread and two fish, and he made it enough to feed 5,000 men plus probably the women and children. And as soon as that's done, if that was not powerful enough, This occurs. Jesus puts the disciples in a boat and he sends them to the other side. Okay? Then what does he do? Verse 23, look at what it says. After he had dismissed him, he went up on a mountainside by himself to pray. And later that night, he was there alone. So the disciples are out. This is about a two hour row to go from one side of the Sea of Galilee to the other. You can go there today. Um, I, I wouldn't recommend getting a rowboat, they have motorized ones now. It's phenomenal. Been out on one of those several times. And uh, the Sea of Galilee, it's, it's not like you think of as like a, an, an ocean, but it is still quite large. It's it's about a two-hour row to go from one side to the other. In the middle of the night, Jesus looks up and he sees them out there in the middle of the sea. Look at what happens. Verse 24. It says this, and the boat was already a considerable distance from land. That's important. That's important. Because what, about, what is about to happen next will be challenged by many, many people. Okay? It will be questioned, and I get it. I'll explain why it will be questioned. The boat is a good distance from land. That means it's out in the water a long ways, but it was being buffeted or beat up by the waves because the wind was against it. Now, in 1995, uh, a boat similar to the boats that would have been used at this time was found It was found encased in mud on the the edge of the Sea of Galilee. In fact, today, you can go and see it. When when we go there, we take people and see it, and it looks like this. Here's what the, the boat looks like today. This is not like a large ship, you understand? So the waves and the wind and the storm and... You know, the, the things that are normal on the Sea of the Galilee because of a mountain that's on the western side. It's called Mount Arbel. And, and right on the steep cliffs of Mount Ar, Arbel, there, there is this, this vortex that is often created where wind comes right down through this tunnel. And it makes, it, you know, make, makes storms on the Sea of Galilee quite, quite wicked. They're out in the middle, they're struggling, they've been paddling a ways, they're not in a very big boat. Here's here's another picture that shows you about about what it would look like today, okay? Anybody want to be in that in the middle of a storm? Sounds great, doesn't it? So you have the context, you understand what's going on, they're struggling, they're trying to paddle, they're trying to get across, and then we have verse 25, look at what happens. Shortly before dawn, what's that mean? that means they've probably been on the water for about six hours, okay? If he sends them, even if it's in the middle of the night, right? If he sends them at 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock at night, they've been paddling all the way now up to dawn, and what happens? Jesus went to them walking on the lake. Can we have a moment of honesty Anybody struggle with that? Yeah. I I have a hard time grasping this. This is why I tell you it's so important to understand that they weren't just by the shore. There's a lot of people who say, well, Jesus was just walking around the edge, the shore. No, they're out in the middle of the sea of Galilee, and Jesus is somehow defying nature and doing something that really only somebody who created it or who has power over it has the ability to do, right? Now imagine, you've been paddling for six hours, you're on a six-hour tour that should have taken you two, and you're getting really worried about joining Gilligan. You're in trouble, okay? And in the middle of the night, you see... Someone walking on water. What's your first thought? Anybody here thinking ghost? You know, I ain't afraid of no ghost. Yes, I would be. In the middle of this, I would be afraid. And what, what is their response? Well, verse 26 tells us very clearly when the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. What is happening? Like, people don't walk on water, okay? It's a ghost, they said, and they cried out in fear. Yeah, that would be my response. How about you? Now, I realize that the types of fears that you have are probably not about ghosts walking to you on water or something like that, right? Your fears are real. You have fears about cancer. You have fears about whether or not your job is ever going to pay you enough. You have fears about whether or not you'll ever get the promotion. You have fears about your kids and whether or not they're going to, you know, make it through school without going to jail or getting you in jail. You have real fears about those things. How in the world does this story speak to you and me? Well, here's how. I think that the story of Jesus taking a very small amount of food and making it into enough for everybody and Jesus going out and demonstrating his power over something that nobody else has the ability to do teach us something big about where we need to look in the midst of our fears. It teaches us this. God is strong enough for even your strongest storms. He is. So what do we do? Well, thankfully, the rest of the story gives us three steps to take in the middle of a storm. It shows us how we can lean into that anchor and how we can look at God and know that he's going to hold us. Look at verse 27. Here's what it says. But Jesus immediately immediately said to them, take courage, it is I. Don't be afraid. Jesus says, take courage. Don't be afraid. Great. I I want you to remember something we talked about last week, we talked about how in the midst of our fears, you know, if we're gonna move from what if to God will, we need to realize that God will be near. Did you know that every single time in the scriptures where God says don't be afraid, he also promises his presence. He promises to be there with you. He will be near, he will take care of you. And here's Jesus doing the same thing. Don't be afraid, take courage, I am right here with you. Fears about your past, fears about broken relationships, fears about failures, wondering if you'll ever get it right, fears about a move, fears about whatever they are. God is strong enough for even your strongest storms, and he is there. So what steps do we take? Well, here's the first step step that we take. We need to remember what God has done. Here's what I would say. Remember what he's already done. So here's, here's the disciples. In the boat, out on the water, things are going crazy, everything's falling apart, and there are ghosts walking on the water, so it seems. But what have they already seen God do? We're in Matthew 14. We're only halfway through Matthew's account of the life of Jesus, and then culminating with the death, burial, and resurrection, and then his ascension back to heaven, leaving the church to spread the good news, okay? What have they seen Jesus do so far? I went back through Matthew this week, and I worked backwards from Matthew chapter 14, and looked at everything they'd seen Jesus do. So what have they seen? Okay, here's what I listed out. They'd seen Jesus multiply the loaves and the fishes. That's Pretty powerful, wouldn't you say? Okay, either you're not awake or you don't get it. Five loaves, two fish, feeding like 15,000 people. You get it? And they went away and they weren't hungry. It's kind of a big deal, okay? He healed the blind and the mute. Matthew chapter nine, verses 29 through 34. Jesus did that. He healed blind people. He healed people who hadn't been able to speak like that, it's kind of a big deal. He raised a dead girl and he healed a sick woman in Matthew chapter nine, verses 18 through 26. He calmed a storm, another storm, on the Sea of Galilee when, when the disciples were scared out of their mind and thought they were gonna die. That's in Matthew chapter 8, verses 23 through 29. He restored two demon-possessed men in Matthew twenty-eight, or Matthew chapter 8, verses 28 through 34. He, heal, he healed Peter's mother-in-law and many others in Capernaum in Matthew chapter 8, verses 14 through 17. He healed a centurion's servant in Matthew chapter 8, verses 5 through 13. He healed a leper, someone that nobody else would go close to. Jesus healed him. In Matthew chapter 8 verses 1 through 4. He healed the sick from all different nations in Matthew chapter 4. That's only half of the book of Matthew. That's only half. What has God done? I wonder what would happen if you and I started making a list of the things that God has done. What has God done for you? How has God showed up? I get it. There are fears right now. There are real things. But how has God showed up in the past? How many times has God provided the money you needed? How many times has God answered the prayer that you just kept offering up? How many times have you got, watched God move in your family or in a loved one? How many times have you seen God provide exactly what you needed right when you needed it and not a minute before? How many times? You say, well, I don't know. I, I I don't know if I've seen God do that a lot. Well, let me tell you about me. 18 years ago, my wife and I set out to buy our first house. We'd saved up some money, and we we started praying, and we said, God, because we, I mean, we, we didn't have a whole lot of money at that point, but, you know, we just started praying, and we were like, Lord, please help us to find the exact house that you want us to be in the neighborhood that you want us to be, and we pray that in the process, these, these are the things we chose to pray we pray that in the process other people would be able to see you we found a house it was like on the on, on in our budget but we we really wanted to see the price come down we made an offer they said no no thanks and so we moved on two weeks later they called back and said just make just come make another offer and we said no we we made our offer so they tried to sweeten the deal, and finally, long so I'll make the story short, eventually we agreed on a price, but it was still like above what, where we, uh, we originally offered, and so we just kept praying and praying and praying, and, the, and, and finally some crazy things happened. The ho- house didn't appraise for what, what they thought it would. Um, I really don't even know how all of this happened, but in the end, we ended up getting the house, they were very happy. We got the house for the price that we originally had hoped for, and they left all of the appliances. And we didn't, we didn't do anything. We, we, I mean, I like to handle things. I like to control them. This situation, we literally didn't do anything. We were on a canoeing trip with barely any, any uh, cell phone coverage. And our realtor calls us and says, hey, this is falling through. And I'm like, uh, okay, I don't know. I don't know what I to do. And by the time we got back, God had taken care of it all. Then, when we moved into our neighborhood for the next 17 years, we got to see God Move in powerful ways we got to see some of our neighbors come to know Christ we were next door neighbors to, to a Muslim family that we got to, got to know so so well we got to share the love of Christ with them they moved to the United States they had never mowed a lawn before <laughs> we, we got to do all of that Listen, that's just one story of how God has taken care of us What about the times where you were late and you were frustrated and then when you made it through a certain intersection God had had slowed you down and you didn't make it through that intersection and there was something rough happening there. God spared you. God took care of you. Remember what God has done. Remember what he has done for you. Now Peter is about to take a giant step. And I wonder if he remembered everything that God had done within the last 24 hours. But he was also seeing what God was doing right at that moment. So not only do we remember what God has done, but we need to secondly recognize, we need to recognize what God is doing now, okay? That's that second step. Recognize what God is doing now. So let's look at verse 28, okay? Let's look at verse 28. Here's what it says. Peter speaks up and he says this, Lord, if it's you, tell me to come to you on the water. Does that sound like a good idea? You mean like with a jet ski, right? (laughs) Yeah, not so much. I don't think they, Yamaha didn't exist in the first century. uh, So, you know, that, that, that wasn't a thing. Lord, if it's you, tell me to come on the water. Then verse 29, look at how Jesus responds. He says this, come, he says, and Peter got down out of the boat and he walked on the water and he came towards Jesus. What is Peter doing? Peter is seeing what Jesus is doing right now and he's like, whoa, I see what God is doing. God is probably a little bigger than I thought he was. I'm gonna take a step. I'm gonna take a step. Can we take a minute and just talk about what God is doing right now? Do you understand that God is doing some phenomenal things in this place right now? Do you understand that? Do you understand that there have been 15 people who have trusted Christ in the first four months of 2023? Do you understand that? Do you understand that if that trend continued, just think it out with me. I don't know that it will. I'm not trying to act like it will. I. It's up to God, but if that trend continued, that would be 45 people who trusted Christ in this area in one year. Wow! Right? I'd be blown away. What did you say? 30, how many people? 31 throughout Bridgewater? 37 people have trusted Christ throughout Bridgewater. You understand that we would be talking about 130 I don't know, I can't math. I'm I'm a pastor. That's not what we do. 100, you know, 111, 111 people trusting Christ. 111 people trusting Christ in one year. Our God is not small. Do you know that 20 people have been baptized in Montrose this year? Do you know that if they baptize six more people, they will break a record that has stood for the number of people being baptized in Montrose for over 100 years? (laughs) God's on the move. We don't have to just look back at what God has done. We can look out and we can see God is doing something big and great. And I know that your fears are real and there are things going on, but God is big and great and God is moving on your behalf right now. And Peter says, okay, I see you. Yep, I see you. Can I come out there? Can I try? I mean, I like to ski, but barefooting, whoo. And barefooting without a boat? It's interesting. Look at what he does. He gets down out of the boat. He walks on the water, and he comes towards Jesus. Here's the thing. John Ortberg, uh, a pastor, years ago wrote a book. It's called "You Can't Get Out." Of, you can't walk on water if you never get out of the boat. I just wonder how many times I just want to cling on to. I just. I just want to cling to that boat. Because I think that that boat is what will keep me safe. And I'm telling you, I'm looking in the wrong place. I got my eyes on the wrong thing. I'm trusting in the wrong one. I need my eyes on God. And I know you're hurting over your family, and I know you're hurting over your physical issues, and I know you're hurting over your finance. I know it, I know it, I know it. I'm not taking it lightly. I just want you to see how big God is. Recognize what God is doing right now. Here's the problem. Peter's human, just like you and me. In verse 30, we find it. Look at what it says. It says this. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Do do you see what changed? What changed was where he was looking. Instead of seeing Jesus and and remembering what he'd done and seeing what he was doing right then, here's Jesus walking on water Lord, you obviously have the ability to do this. You can, you can make this possible for me. Okay, cool. He had his eyes on Jesus, and then all of a sudden, he's got his eyes someplace else. He has it on the wind. He has it on the rain. He has it on storm. He has it on the waves. And what happened? He began to sink, and he cried out, Lord, save me. No wonder we struggle in the midst of our fears, worries, and anxieties so much. Maybe it's because we have our eyes on the wrong place. God is powerful enough to take care of you, even in the midst of your greatest storms i uh, I like to ride mo- motorcycles anybody else yeah yeah it's a, it's a it's a difficult touchy subject right now, yeah, I know for both of you, you too I like to ride motorcycles and there's this uh this place in uh North Carolina slash Tennessee, it's called the Tale of the Dragon. Anybody ever heard of it? 318 curves in 11 miles. Been there several times. It's beautiful. Let me show you a picture of it. This is, uh, this is, this is what it looks like from the top. This is what it's, I, I can honestly tell you, I, well, I shouldn't say this because I don't know if my wife knows this. I've ridden in the dark a few times. Not a, not a great idea. Don't recommend it. Uh, it is phenomenal. But here's the thing, when you enter the Tail of the Dragon, if you come from one direction, you'll find a different picture than this when you come in. If we can bring up that second picture, you find something like this. (laughs) Bring up that next picture. Nope, is it not in there? Oh, never mind. I must not have got it in there, I'm really sorry. There uh, There is a tree, it's called the Tree of Shame. It's a tree that's filled with motorcycle parts. Why? There's so many curves. A lot of these guys are experienced riders. What happens? I'll tell you what happens. You take your eyes off of where you're going. Any motorcycle rider will tell you that where you put your eyes is where you're going to go. There's, there's a law. There's actually a physical law. It's called target fixation. Where you look is where you will go. Try it in your car. To, actually, don't. That's a bad idea. <laughs> Don't, don't, don't do that. Don't do that. Where you look is where you will go. And the reality is, where you look in the midst of your fear and your worry is where you will go. It will take you somewhere. Why not look at the biggest one possible? Why not look at the one who can actually do something? Why not fix our eyes on God, see, with your eyes on God, you can walk on the waves of your fears instead of drowning under them. With your eyes on God, you can walk on the waves of your fears instead of drowning under them. It reminds me of Hebrews chapter 12, which says this. Let us run with perseverance, the race that's marked out for us. No one says the race will be easy, but how do we do it? Fixing our eyes on Jesus, who is the pioneer, the beginner, and the perfecter, the one who changes us, who works on us. He works on us, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, so that you will not grow weary and you will not lose heart. Where you put your eyes is where you will go. So what do we do? Here's what we do. We we need to learn to respond to who God is. These are the three steps. Remember what God has done recognize what God is currently doing, and respond. Respond to who God is. Look at the text. So, Peter's just walked on water. He gets scared. He begins to drown. He begins to sink. Anybody, by the way, who thinks that Jesus is walking just on the the edge of the shore, this text doesn't seem to mash up, but here he is, he's drowning. Jesus pulls him back up. He says to him, hey, you of little faith, why, why, why are you so afraid? D- didn't you see I already could do this? I got you. This is the greatest, like, I got you, boo, moment, okay? That's, he, that's what he's saying. Why, why are you doubting? And then when they get back to the boat, look, this is, this is what happens. Verse 32, and when they climbed into the boat, the wind did what? The wind died down. That's interesting. Who's controlling that? Verse 33. Then those who were in the boat. Worshipped him. They responded. Worship him. I don't know why. But I have in my head. At this moment like this. All hail King Jesus. Just. I don't know what your fears are, I don't know what your worries are, I don't know what your, your 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 anxieties are. But I want you to know that God is more than enough. And when we respond to Him like that, He gives us peace. Remember, worship precedes peace, not the other way around. Worship precedes peace. So here they are. They're in the boat. They're worshiping. They're saying, truly, you are the what? Son of God. That's who you are. One of our pastors, Pastor Bob, who was up here last week, actually wrote this line. And I thought this line is so good. I want to share it with you. He said this, in physical darkness, God gives us light. In emotional darkness, God gives us music. In the midst of an emotional darkness, what if we just learn to worship God? And just stop and say, Lord, I want to praise you. You got this. I know who you are. You're big. You're powerful. You're mighty. You got this. Right? That's what we do. So here's what I want to ask you to do. Okay? I want to ask you to join me in choosing to put your eyes on God choosing to put your eyes on what he has done and what he is doing and responding to him, choosing to pray and to worship. I want to ask you to do that with me, whatever your fears may be. As we close this morning, I wonder what would happen if you would take your fear, write it down, and then say, okay, God, this is what I've seen you do, and now I'm going to praise you. I just wonder what would happen would you pray with me god i thank you for your word for the encouragement in it i'm thankful that you love us and that you work in powerful ways please help us to trust you please help us to put our eyes on you Please help us to stop looking to other things. I like to look to, to people or to my circumstances or to a bank account or to, to what I can figure out on my own to think that now it's going to be okay. But in reality, <laughs> that, those are just boats that are flimsy in the middle of a storm. I need you. Pray this in Jesus' name.